Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, Daniel chapter one. I think the word most used in modern times to describe the book of Daniel is probably controversial. But it's not always been so. We've spent two weeks now preparing to study Daniel because we need to understand what the reasons are for the many interpretations of and and the virulent attacks against this particular book. And this is important because the book of Daniel has become a pivot point in Christianity from the aspect of our actual depth of belief in the truth of the Bible and thus our faith in Messiah. And also what it is telling us and it is not telling us about this sequence of events that's still future to us and what we call the end times or in Hebrew the Achrit Hayamim. Now briefly we discussed that institutional Christianity is built upon a structure called systematic theology. And while the church had plenty of firm doctrines set forth prior to the Enlightenment period of the early 1700s, from that time forward, the mindset of church leadership became to essentially use a variation of the scientific method as a tool to interpret the Bible and to teach it to aspiring pastors and to lay congregations. This tool is called systematic theology. Now it had the ironic effect of both providing a means to protect Christianity from the attempts of the Enlightenment philosophers to essentially dismantle it, but also the Holy Scriptures henceforth had to be kind of turned and bent to agree with human reasoning and intellect or the Holy Writ was deemed suspicious, superstitious, and merely Jewish myth and legend. For every law, for every command from God, for every biblically related event, the Bible scholar was compelled to find an answer to why. And until the why was determined, the validity of the command or the event was in question. Now, as any careful reader of the Bible knows, God rarely explains his rationale for his decisions. Rather, he simply pronounces them. Then he expects obedience from his worshipers. And in contrast, the Bible academic relies on his or her own intellect, their education, and their worldview to discern the whys and the wherefores of the Bible. And not surprisingly, the end game of modern, critical Bible scholarship has been, rather has determined that since the supernatural is not observable, it defies logic. And since predicting the future is scientifically impossible and it's unreasonable, And since miracles can't be proved in nature or reproduced in a laboratory, then none of these, as reported in the Bible, can be real. 
Now, I've had a few people say to me, well, no pastor ever said that to me. Nor have I read in a Bible commentary that the author says the supernatural doesn't exist. Or concerning Israel, I've never heard a preacher say that he believes and wants us to believe in a thing called replacement theology. No, and you likely won't. Some of it has to do with your personal choice of commentaries. More it has to do with doing some homework on the personal lives of these authors, reading their journal articles, reading interviews they've given during conferences, finding out where they were educated, who their role models and mentors were, and then understanding the implication of their various theological explanations and conclusions that are often obscured in esoteric academic grammar and vocabulary. Pastors, on the other hand, well, we'll, by nature, do what can be done to avoid controversy or to sidestep difficult doctrinal matters that could easily upset or even split a congregation, and I think wisely so. And it has been my personal experience that many church leaders at the assistant pastor, sometimes at the pastor level, aren't even aware of some of their own denominational doctrines until they're called on the carpet by an upper-level denominational authority and set straight. Thus, for example, a denomination that in its fundamental internal doctrines declares the church has gained all the blessings of God because God has rejected his Old Testament people, the Jews, and by the way, this is by far the most widespread belief, at least in Western Christianity, rarely ever says such a thing out loud or presents it as more than a veiled implication. But recently, some church leaders, as with John Piper, have had to publicly reveal their theology as he and others of his persuasion have taken a public and unapologetic stance against Israel and for the Palestinian Arabs. And he had to explain that the reason for it is that his theology is that the Jews are permanently out of favor with God and Gentiles, like Palestinians, are therefore in favor with God. Our own Rabbi Baruch has written an eloquent response to John Piper's unbiblical position on this. But because systematic theology <coughs> is logic and reasoning based, then as time has passed and the human intellect has come to play a much larger role in Christianity, it became necessary that physical phenomena in the Bible must be explained naturally as opposed to supernaturally. For instance, it's been in vogue for many years now to not necessarily deny a parting of the Red Sea, but rather the trick is to get around the problem of appearing ignorant and out of step by explaining that what was crossed over, what was parted, 
was not the deep waters of the Red Sea, but rather a rather shallow mudflat nearby called the Reed Sea. And that a sufficiently strong and dry wind blowing in the right direction coincidentally dried out a pathway sufficient for the people of the Exodus to pass through without getting their little tootsies wet. Then the event was turned into Jewish legend and written down as a folk story that was meant to impart a good religious message of God rescuing his own people. Or, in keeping with the modern systematic theological doctrines of John J. Collins in his highly acclaimed scholarly commentary on Daniel. He just dives in, taking as understood that Daniel was written at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, some 370 years after when Daniel lived. And he explains all the passages in his commentary in those terms. Further, he describes the literary form of Daniel in the introduction to his commentary as, and I quote, Aramaic tales. And informs the reader in that same introduction that the consensus of modern critical scholarship is, and it is true, and has been for nearly a century, that, and again I quote, the stories about Daniel and his friends are legendary in character and the hero himself probably never existed. And yet, he readily admits a few paragraphs later that from the 2nd through the 17th centuries, Daniel's authenticity went virtually unquestioned in the church until we hit the Enlightenment. And then in Europe, Christianity went through this transformational restructuring into modern systematic theology. He also leaves out that from the time of Ezra until the time of Christ, there is no known mention in any known Jewish writing of Daniel being thought of as possibly untruthful, nor do we hear of such a suggestion from the mouths of the Essens at Qumran where the book of Daniel was discovered right along with the other Dead Sea Scrolls. Well then in our last lesson we discussed that one of the six to ten or so categories that forms a unified systematic theology is something called eschatology. That is the doctrines concerning the end times. <clears throat> and in general, those different end times positions are fairly well summed up in three different named theological viewpoints. Amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism. Now I'm not going to go over these again. You can review it on your own from our previous lesson. <clears throat> Pardon me. However, practically every commentator on Daniel holds tightly to one of those positions or maybe a slightly modified version of one of them whether they openly express it by name or not and it's often up to the reader to investigate the author to discern which one but whatever the theology that that author might subscribe to 
it substantially determines the author's interpretation of Daniel before the first words of the commentary are ever penned. Because if he or she comes to theological conclusions outside of their doctrinal boundaries, then his or her particular brand of systematic theology is compromised, maybe even wounded. We ended by discussing that Christianity has changed mightily since the days of the New Testament when Yeshua lived and then later when his half-brother James was the leader of this Jewish sect known as the Way. And we saw that the Christ movement was at first Jewish-founded and Jewish-dominated. Then it became Gentile-dominated and Jews were discouraged from membership. By the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Constantine strove to make the now Hellenistic brand of Christianity the official religion of his empire. And as a result, Christianity exploded in popularity across all the known world. It's here where the Roman Catholic Church took form. And from the 6th to the 18th centuries, we saw how the primary goals of the church hierarchy were political power within state and national governments and then also to fend off any competing religions such as Islam. Thus Christianity tended to look mostly inward and took a defensive posture. But starting shortly upon the turn from the 19th to the 20th century, a heartfelt interest in bringing new believers into the fold emerged. By the 1950s and 60s, evangelism took hold in the church as it began to direct its efforts outside of its own walls, sometimes spurred on by difficult social problems. And this led to the Jesus Movement of the 1960s and 70s. The church was on a high. And once again, church growth exploded. The result has been that for any practical purpose, the entire globe has by now had the gospel message taken to even the most remote reaches. And it was all accomplished by the Gentile church as prophesied. Now, we learned, however, that Yeshua and Paul spoke of a day when the era of Gentile leadership in teaching the world about the Lord would end and the Jews would once again find themselves at the forefront. This would happen, we are told, upon the Hebrews returning from the four corners of the earth to reestablish the nation of Israel and when Jerusalem once again came under Jewish control. The first of those two events happened in 1948, the second in 1967. And not surprisingly, really, as we look around us, we find Jewish Messianic synagogues emerging, not just in America, but throughout the world. Its partner, 
on the Gentile side in restoring biblical truth from a whole Bible approach as opposed to a New Testament only approach and extolling the rightful place of the Hebrew people as God's precious treasure is the Hebrew Roots Movement. Together, there can be no more visible, tangible evidence that we are at the end of an age that Yeshua calls the fullness of the Gentiles, but is better known to us as the Church Age. Just as it took a while for the fortress-minded church to drop its resistance and embrace its divine commission of evangelism in this new transition, it's going to take time for the church to drop its resistance to embracing its true historical, biblical, and spiritual Hebrew roots and accept that the Jews who have been pushed aside for nearly 2,000 years are in process of regaining the preeminent place that God had for them all along as the key players in his process of redemption. The only question then before us is this. Will we recognize what the Bible clearly states is the sign of our entry into the end times and accept it and go with the flow? Or shall we fight against it? Hang on with all of our might to mostly man-made doctrines, a lot of comfortable, fun traditions that validate what we would prefer to believe and also gives us the greatest social acceptance. And finally, as we get ready now to enter the book of Daniel, I want you to hang on to this. What you each accept about the authenticity and the truthfulness of this book has everything to do with the nature of your relationship with the Lord. Because if you conclude that Daniel is a well-intentioned fraud, as do most modern Bible commentators and sadly a growing segment of pastors and Bible teachers, and that it was created as Jewish fiction around 165 BC that it puts you in direct opposition to Christ who in Matthew 24, 15, and 16 quoted Daniel by name, told his disciples to believe it. Further, such a stand makes the book of Revelation, which is said to have come from our Messiah, error-filled and rather useless, since the prophecies of Daniel are foundational to it. Now here's what the book of Daniel claims. And what I believe the evidence clearly proves, it was written around 530 to 540 B.C. by Daniel while he was in Babylon. Several of the prophecies contained in it have already come to pass precisely as predicted. But there are more to be fulfilled. And we can confidently expect them to happen. I think a good way to approach our study of Daniel is to see it in three parts. Part one is chapter one. And it is the historical introduction to the book of Daniel. 
Part 2 is chapters 2 through 7. And it deals with the Gentile nations of the earth. Especially as concerns their inherent character, their relation with one another, and their destinies. Part 3 is chapters 8 through 12. And the subject is Israel. It deals with Israel's relationship with the Gentile world and what God's plans are for Israel's future. It surprises most Bible students to learn that Daniel was composed in two different languages. Some of Daniel is written in Hebrew. Some of it is written in Aramaic. Remembering that now chapter and verse divisions were added long after the Bible was closed up and they don't necessarily follow the, the Bible flow that was a, as it was a, a originally written, we can generally say then that chapter 1 is in Hebrew, chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, and chapter 8 through the end returns to Hebrew. This fact has allowed Bible skeptics, and especially the school of Bible criticism, to say that on its face, this is strong evidence that Daniel was written by at least two different authors, probably at two different times. But that completely overlooks a couple of simple facts. First, the language of Babylon, where Daniel was captive, was Aramaic. And second, and perhaps most important, the passages of Daniel that speak directly to the Hebrews concerning Israel are in Hebrew. And the passages that speak directly to Gentiles concerning the Gentile kingdoms and nations are written in Aramaic, the Gentile language of that era and region. Now as the book of Daniel opens, Judah has already been carried off to Babylon. And since the kingdom of Judah basically represented but one tribe, Judah, even though Benjamin, as well as some unknown part of Simeon, had been largely absorbed into Judah, still it is technically correct to call this people group who went up to Babylon Jews. That the same can't be said for another part of Israel that had been carried away in a totally separate exile. That part of Israel were not Jews. Rather, they consisted of ten Israelite tribes that occupied both the northern part of the kingdom of Israel, this was also called the kingdom of Ephraim, as well as the land on the east side of the Jordan River. That group of ten tribes had been exiled and scattered all over the vast Assyrian Empire some 120 to 130 years before Judah's exile to Babylon. We hear little more about those ten tribes in the remainder of the Bible except to learn that they continued to exist in their exile and that at some time far into the future future of Daniel, that they would return in mass to the promised land and join up with Judah to form one unified nation that would never end. Now, 
helps also to understand that Israel was not in a condition of having been rejected by God, as it's often portrayed. Rather, they were in a state of suffering from God's indignation or fury against them. In Christianity, we generally have a little trouble with the concept of rejecting the sin, but accepting the sinner. That's precisely what's happening with Judah and its relationship with Jehovah and now in their exile. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. We're going to read about a dozen verses. Starting at verse 5. The word of the Lord says this. The message was always, every one of you turn back from his evil way, from the evil of your actions. Then you will live in the land that and I gave to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Don't follow other gods by serving and worshiping them. Don't provoke my anger with things your own hands have made. Then I'll do you no harm. But you wouldn't listen to me, says Adonai, so that you could provoke me with the products of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, here is what Adonai Sefot says. Because you haven't paid attention to what I'm saying, I'm going to send you, or rather, I'm going to send for all the families of the north, says Adonai, and for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations I will completely destroy them making them an object of horror and ridicule of perpetual ruin moreover I will silence among them the sounds of joy and gladness the voices of the bridegroom and the bride the grinding of millstones and the light of lamps the entire land will become a ruin a waste and these nations will serve the king of Babel for 70 years but when the 70 years are over I will punish the king of Babel and that nation for their sins says Adonai and I will turn the land of the Kostim Chaldeans into everlasting ruins I will inflict on that land all my words that I have decreed against it Everything written in this book in which Yermiao, Jeremiah, has prophesied against all the nations. For they too will become slaves to many nations, to powerful kings. I will pay them back according to their deeds and the work of their own hands. For here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says to me. Take this cup of the wine of fury from my hand and make all the nations where I am sending you drink it. God says... That because Judah infuriated him due to their sinful wickedness, especially as concerns idolatry, he would send Nebuchadnezzar against them to express God's fury and to exact a price. But this was only to be for a predetermined period of time. At the end of that time, God's fury would be turned away from Judah and instead directed towards Babylon for having been too harsh on his people. One other thing. Just as the exile 
of the ten tribes was indefinite and the exile of Judah was fixed for 70 years. So it is that the exile of the ten tribes was through a thorough scattering over a vast area while the exile of Judah was to be together as a group sent to a common place. Thus, while the sense of community was broken for the ten tribes, the sense of community for Judah would remain intact. Daniel, as well as Ezekiel, was fully aware of this, and it's reflected in his prophecies. Now, before we read Daniel, I want to advise you that as we run across several of these passages where Bible critics question their accuracy and their authenticity, I'm going to tell you about them. And we'll discuss them sometimes in depth, other times only briefly. The reality is this. Please hear me on this. As modern believers, we have little choice but to know our Bibles thoroughly enough to refute the bogus claims that not only the secular world, but some segments of the church and synagogue through us. So, open your Bibles now to the incomparable book of Daniel, chapter 1. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1098. 1098. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Ad and I handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the articles from the house of God. He took them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the articles in the storehouse of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the eunuch serving as chief officer, to bring into the palace from the people of Israel some of royal or noble descent. They were to be boys, without physical defect, handsome in appearance, versed in all kinds of wisdom, quick to learn, discerning, having the capacity to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Kostim, the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of his own food and the wine he drank, and they were to be cared for in this way for three years. And at the end of this time, they were to become the king's attendants. Now among these from the people of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief officer gave them other names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belt Shatzar. To Hanyah, uh, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Avednego. But Daniel resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank, so he asked the chief officer to be excused from defiling himself. God caused the chief officer to be kind and sympathetic towards Daniel. However, the chief officer said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. After all, he has, he, uh, he has given you an allowance of food and drink. So if he were to see you boys looking worse than the others of your age, you'd be putting my own head in danger from the king. And then Daniel said to the guard whom the chief officer had put in charge of Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, Please, try an experiment on your servants. 
for ten days have them give us only vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then see how we look. Compare us with how the boys who eat the king's food look and then deal with your servants according to what you see. He agreed to do what they had asked and gave them a ten-day test. At the end of ten days, they looked better, more robust than all the boys who were eating the king's food. So the guard took away their food and the wine they were supposed to drink and he gave them vegetables. Now to these four boys, God had given knowledge and skill in every aspect of learning and wisdom and moreover, Daniel could understand all kinds of visions and dreams. And when the king had set for them Uh, When the time the king had set for them to be presented came, the chief officer presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And when the king spoke with them, none was found among all of them to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in all matters requiring wisdom and understanding, whenever the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and exorcists in his entire kingdom. So Daniel remained there until the first year of King Koresh. It seems that when King Nebuchadnezzar first sent his troops against Jerusalem, he not only returned home with valuable articles and vessels looted from the Holy Temple, but he also commandeered several Jewish youths of unusual aptitude, physical characteristics, and uh, an aristocratic lineage. He wisely intended on using their intellectual and spiritual gifts for his royal court. They were turned over to some Chaldean tutors to be educated in the ways of the Babylonians, no doubt to learn to read and speak and write their Aramaic language and to help lead the way in assimilation of the Jewish people. But be aware that these young Jewish men almost certainly had already already had rather a working knowledge of Aramaic since it was the most spoken language of the region and would have been needed for business for political transactions with the outside world, as well as the many residents of Judah who were foreigners. This military expedition spoken of in the first verse happened when King Jehoiakim was the ruler of Judah. And we first heard of this back in Second Kings in chapter 24. There it says this, it was Jehoiakim's time. It was in Jehoiakim's time that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, invaded, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he turned against him and rebelled. Adonai sent against him raiding parties from the Kasdim, Aram, Moab, and the people of Ammon, and he sent he sent them against Judah to destroy it, in keeping with the word of Adonai, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Yes. It was at Adonai's order that this happened to Judah in order to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done and also because of the innocent blood he had shed for he had flooded Jerusalem with innocent blood and Adonai was unwilling to forgive. Now interestingly, the Bible critics who claim that Daniel is fictional say that we, ought to, that we immediately encounter a dating issue Because Daniel says 
It was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim when Babylon invaded Jerusalem. However, Jeremiah 25 says that the first year of Nebuchadnezzar was the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So we have a one-year discrepancy. Therefore, the person writing this had to be a fraud because Daniel was supposedly present and wouldn't have made such an obvious historical mistake. Just one problem. I have presented to you in earlier lessons on other books that there were five, count them five, systems of dating events and the reigns of kings working simultaneously throughout most of the Old Testament era. So the issue, of course, is how to accurately express the reigns of kings and then to coordinate them with historical events. See, this is a common challenge for biblical scholars throughout the Old Testament. An example of this. In one dating system, only whole years were counted. So, a ruler in his first year could rule for only one day shy of an entire calendar year, and yet that was considered as year zero. Not the first year of his rule. Or, in another system, a king could reign for as little as only the final day of the current calendar year, and that was counted as year one of his rule. Further, sometimes the calendar used to measure it by was the civil calendar year, whereby years began in the month of Tishri. But at other times, the calendar used was the religious event calendar year. So, that the years in the religious event calendar year began in Nisan. So there's automatically a half-year differential. So, to debate over a stated one-year discrepancy, making Daniel to be historically inaccurate as a result is ludicrous. It's disingenuous. No one is even certain whether Nebuchadnezzar would have counted his years on the Babylonian throne the same way as Jehoiakim would have counted his years on Judah's throne. Well, it was in the year 605 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar sent mostly mercenary forces to Jerusalem to attack it in response to Jehoiakim's rebellion. And this could be considered the time that the first wave of Jewish captives were hauled off to Babylon. Daniel and Ezekiel are said to be part of this first group to be taken. So they would be in Babylon to personally witness life there for the Jewish people in exile, but they would not be in Jerusalem to be eyewitnesses to the later Babylonian military excursions into the Holy Land and thus the later deportations. Rather, they would have had to rely on others to give them accounts of what occurred. Now, verse 3 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar commanded his chief eunuch to select some of Israel's finest youth and that they should be seed of the kingdom, meaning the kingdom of Judah, and nobles for use in the Babylonian palace. Now, later, we'll hear that Daniel was a eunuch. But in the Bible, eunuch, in Hebrew that's saris, 
can be used either narrowly to mean a male who's been castrated and then used in a specialized service to the king, such as being guardian over his harem. Or it can be used broadly. And it can mean a male who is a steward of some sort for the king and castration is not involved. One notable example of the broader use of the word Saris, a eunuch, who was obviously not a castrated male, was Potiphar, chief steward of Pharaoh in Joseph's day. Potiphar was married. As a matter of fact, we even hear of his wife accosting a younger Joseph. And while we can't know for certain, it appears that in Babylon, in this setting, the term eunuch had come to be the name of some official government office rather than a term indicating male castration. So later, when we're told kind of offhandedly that Daniel had become the Saris for the king, it's close to unthinkable that Daniel had been castrated. Rather, he just assumed a high office. The next question has to do with the term Zerah Melucha, what that means. Depending on your translation, you'll see in your Bibles that it says either seed of the king or seed of the kingdom or, like in the complete Jewish Bible, the royal. Now we can probably cross out the word kingdom since in Hebrew kingdom is mamlacha. Mamlacha. The reason this is an issue is because it's in this passage that it causes some commentators to say that Daniel, possibly the other three youths as well, were of the royal line of the Judean kings. In other words, they were family of King Jehoiakim. But the term melucha can just mean royalty in the broadest sense, so that it in no way means a person who could succeed to the throne. What makes it more uncertain is that there was a second category of societal class that, that was to be acquired and then sent for training by the Chaldeans, and that was partam, which means nobility, aristocrats. Likely Daniel and his, his three associates were some mixture of partam, nobility, and melucha, royalty, but we don't know which one would have been which. Verse 4 makes it clear that these would be Jewish youth who were already given the finest Hebrew education, considered the brightest and the most refined of Judah, and were to be very good looking. And this was because they would be serving and therefore representing the king of Babylon. So they were to look and act the part. And the first thing that would happen is that they were to be given over to the Chaldeans. These were people from a special district. Um, these were, I guess you could call them the elite Babylonians. They were sent to be educated in the finer nuances of, of Babylonian history and customs and language. Nebuchadnezzar was a smart man. He was going to take advantage of whatever brain power he could extract from Judah. Further, this would serve to weaken Judah, tear at their social fabric, and hopefully make them less likely to cause trouble. 
We'll continue with Daniel chapter 1 next week.